Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. According to police figures, 900 New Zealanders joined a gang in 2020, with a growing number of gang leaders and affiliates deported from Australia also bolstering those numbers. It comes as no surprise then that New Zealand is now one of the most lucrative illicit drug markets in the world, with dealers graduating from not only the motorcycle gangs of 20 years ago, but also Asian crime syndicates and the most dangerous drug lords in the world, the Mexican cartels. New Zealand Herald investigative reporter Jared Savage, who has twice been named Reporter of the Year, is the author of Gangland, New Zealand's Underworld of Organised Crime, in which he shines a light into this dark arena. He discusses the state of play with Sonia Wilson. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, right, kapai. So, Jared Savage. He has been a reporter for nearly 17 years, and during that time he has become a master of court and criminal reporting, cultivating an army of sources and an armory of knowledge uh, around police and judicial proceedings. He's sort of the go-to guy when it comes to reporting on gangs and organised crime. Uh, He's won most of the major Kiwi Journalism Awards going, including twice being named uh, New Zealand Reporter of the Year, an award for which he's nominated for again this year. Uh, His book Gangland was published last year and it's had rave reviews since. Um, It's a a deep dive into New Zealand's underworld of organised crime and violent gangs, a book that charts the growth of organised methamphetamine trafficking in this country and the police response to that. Um, it is, to, to paraphrase Jared's prologue in his book, a collection of stories that go behind the headlines and open the door to an invisible world. A world where millions of dollars are made, life is cheap, and allegiances change like the flick of a switch. Jared Savage, welcome. Um, this invisible world you describe, it sounds like something off the telly, not something happening in little old New Zealand. Yeah, and I think... The most surprising thing to me from the feedback from people who read it is that they were surprised that this is this is happening. Um, lots of people say this should be on TV or Netflix or whatever, or they don't believe it, but it, it is true. Um, and it's just most people probably doesn't touch their worlds. So if, if you're going around your daily life, it's not gonna. I don't think you're gonna be shot or you know or killed. But the wider sort of um, issues, the wider social issues, do impact on, on everybody. And I guess that's why it's it's more than just a collection of um, rip snorting crime yards. There's you know it's quite a serious sort of uh, wider social issue that we need to grapple with as well. So. Like you said, the book is not just sort of a recent history of of gangs in New Zealand, but it also charts the history of meth in New Zealand for the past sort of 25 years or so. Um, Just just so that we're clear from the get-go, what are we talking about when we're talking about meth? So, so meth is a it's a class A drug, um, which means it's the most serious in terms of um, penalty. It's deemed by our parliament to be one that has serious sort of uh, social and health issues. It is. it can come in different forms, but most likely in New Zealand we would smoke it in a crystalline form. So it's kind of like, it can be like a glass-like shard or um, powdery at times, a dirty powder. 
Um, you can also, so that's smoked in a, in a glass pipe um, with a with No a one's taking notes. Underneath, yeah. Uh, it, it is a stimulant, um, so it makes you feel incredible, makes you feel 10 foot tall, uh, very attractive, bulletproof. Um, people will talk, all, they talk about talking all night and they're thinking that they're being, you know, incredibly eloquent and articulate, but um, if the police are listening in, it's often just gibberish, you know. Um, it's... It's, one, it's also, I guess, another point to make is that it's, it's a synthetic drug. It's not, um, it's not, you know, naturally grown. It's something that has to be produced through a chemical process with various ingredients, um, which used to be in our cold and flu medicine. And, and that was, I talk about this in the book about um, pseudoephedrine-based cold and flu medicines uh, were quite effective. Uh, so unfortunately now you can't have that with those medicines. You got to, because um, the pseudoephedrine, the main ingredient. Um, can be stripped out and used in, in meth, and um, it re methamphetamine really has changed the organised crime world um, because of the vast amounts of money that can be made from it, and um, it's, it's really taken us to the next to the next level, um, which. Um, the, yeah, which we can talk about. When, <laughs> but, yeah. um, so, yeah. so when we talk about meth, we're talking about P known as P in New Zealand yep. or ICE in Australia. Yep, there's different yep. different names for it. Um, P was a, a word that was used, P short for pure, because I guess back in the late 90s, there were like, people would have called meth um, speed, um, which really wasn't that potent. Um, I guess the other great point to make about meth, actual proper meth, uh, and P, P for pure, because it was about 70 to 80% purity, which is about as good as you can get it. So the drug that we were using was a lot, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when it first got a foothold here, was a lot stronger than what had come before it. Uh, and that's why it became so popular. Um, you write, in fact, that as an economic model, methamphetamine has been a New Zealand success story. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's really has, and, and one, I guess one of the anecdotes that the, that the police use, um, which I've repeated in there, is that back in the 1970s and 80s, organised crime was like a, the corner dairy. It was very local. Um, you might have had various families involved in, um, you know, uh, cannabis cultivation and selling tinnies and, and things like that. And then it sort of progressed to the point where, um, you know, when meth really came in, um, all of a sudden it's like you had some quite entrepreneurial crooks that sort of went from going, and a lot of them were actually bank robbers, so they'd be going around robbing banks, and which is quite dangerous for, for them as well as everybody else, and so yeah. they realised, and quite high, you know, you normally would get caught more often than not, um, and they quickly realised that, well, actually a lot of money can be made from, from methamphetamine, so they sort of took that quite entrepreneurial bent into the, into the meth world, um, and sort of making like a lot of money from it, and low, it was quite low risk because it's sort of um, harder for the police to investigate and, and catch, and so people were making their fortunes. Um, it went from the corner store to like you know um, like a, a national chain, I suppose, a franchise chain, and then to the point now where we are kind of the branch office for a multinational at, at, at the other end of the world. So. Um, you know, you do note in, in your introduction that organised crime is about one thing and one thing only, and that is making money. And the thing that has made money for these gangs uh, in recent times is methamphetamine. That's, as you say, the big, the big money spinner. Um, how oh, I was going to ask you how much meth is coming into this country, but perhaps the better question is how much is being caught coming into this country? Yeah, that's right. Um, so. 
Just to give everyone a, a bit of a, an idea, so back in the early 2000s when it was first sort of taking off and it wasn't really capturing, it was catching public attention in terms of, because it was getting linked to some quite violent crimes and some quite crazy behaviour. In the early 2000s, like, the police would get quite like, excited about finding like, a kilo, a kilogram, a kilogram of meth, which had a rough street value of about a million dollars. Um, when you broke it down to, um, I'll give you a quick lesson on the economics of, of <laughs> meth. But so a kilo, a kilo of meth, um, up until very recently, a kilogram in the wholesale package would be worth anywhere between two hundred to three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for one kilogram. And then it's kind of weirdly they break it down into um, ounces, which is twenty-eight point five grams. That is, so you go from metric to empirical. Um, and um, I've, it's always been meth has never been a strong suit of mine, but. <laughs> Those, depending on the market, an ounce, once it's broken down, can be worth anywhere between twelve, ten to $16,000. And then it's broken down into grams, which for a long time was around sort of the $800 mark. And then a gram is broken down into points, which is 0.1 of a gram. Uh, and that price has stayed pretty much static across the country at a, for 20 years at $100. So that's why they say, when you know the cops will say, oh, we've, we've seized a million dollars worth of, of meth um, from that one kilogram. It's because the, the point is, is, is 100, has 100 bucks. Now, a kilogram used to be a big seizure back in the day. Um, now we're bringing in, like, catching 500 kilos in, in one go. So if that can give you... Um, uh, sort of an idea of the scale in which we are um, dealing with. I can recall the first time the 500 kilos was, was caught, um, was picked up, and it kind of blew my mind because for a long time, um, the biggest ever seizure, the one that everyone referred to, was about 100 kilos, and that was 10 years ago. And I caught, it caught everybody by surprise, the sort of the half tonne. That was back in July 2016. Uh, and since then, there's been at least four similar sized ones that have been stopped and we don't know how much is getting through um, because we don't know what we don't know. But I mean, there used to be estimates that we would catch about 10% of it, yeah. Where is that all ending up? Where's the demand for that much coming from? This is, and this is the eternal question because uh, you know, we're, only, we're not a huge population. Um, and for a long time we didn't actually know the answer to this, but I guess in the early days, before it got this stigma, um, negative stigma, it was quite a cool party drug, like it did make you feel awesome, um, apparently, I don't, <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I don't actually, I don't actually know this, um, but, um, and so, but it, it cut across like the entire social spectrum, so it wasn't just, you know, you're down and out drug users, you know, that you might think about in your collective, you know, popular thinking, we, you know, we're talking about, wealthy business people, you know, the leafy streets of, of Imuera, um, you know, office workers, and, it, like, and everyone in between. Um, and then I think over time it's become um, more of a drug now, which is really attacking the regions. Um, so when I go travelling out sort of in Northland or the Eastern Bay of Plenty, so I live in Tauranga, so I go out to Fukutane and Apotiki, Kaurau, um, down to the East Cape, it's really having an effect on our smaller rural communities. Um, I would now say that um, it's probably switched from being sort of like a rich cool party drug 20 years ago to being one more that really has entrenched sort of poverty in our, in our, in our rural regions. And the police can now test this. Um, we, about two years ago they brought in um, 
wastewater testing. So they test um, the scientists, very clever scientists. Don't don't tell me, ask me how it works, but they um, they describe it as one giant urine test. So they have. Um, they can test the water going through um, the, the wastewater pipes, going through the substations, and then they can work out on a parts per million basis um, how much methamphetamine is going through the water, how much cocaine, how much MDMA, which is uh, ecstasy, um, fentanyl, which is an, op an opioid drug which has killed tens of thousands of people in the States, and luckily we haven't had that problem mm -hmm. here yet. Um, so they can now estimate that um, we're using about 15 kilograms of meth per week across the country. Um, but when you do the maths, like 15 you know, times 50, it still doesn't add up to what we're uh, seizing at the border. So part of me wonders sometimes, has it been stockpiled somewhere and then used to control the s supply and demand? Or are we even, so is some of it going to Australia, um, which is also um, has a huge, they call it ice over there, they have a huge ice problem there. So part of me wonders, are we, are we, is it, are we a stopping point um, for there as well? But um, mm. we, definitely, we definitely know that at least 15 kilograms um, every single week uh, is being consumed, which when you break it down by a point of a gram is, is a lot. A lot of mess. Yeah, you, you may know, not know the answer to this one, but you know you write about and you've spoken about how New Zealand's meth crisis came quickly and it came hard. What is it about meth or, or pee that, that has made it so popular here over any other illicit drug? Yeah, and I've asked a lot of people that, that question, yeah, why isn't it cocaine? Why mm. isn't it um, heroin, which we had a, you know, a, small, a small sort of issue with back in the 80s, the home back heroin. And I really do think it just comes down to how, um, how addictive it is. It's not necessarily just addictive. Like, it does make you feel great, and you're constantly wanting to chase that, that feeling again. Um, but I, I really do think it's a great escape for people. Um, it's, it's addictive in a psychological way, not a physical way. So if, if you're an addict to, to methamphetamine, you're not going to have the same sort of physiological cravings that you might have coming off, say, an opioid like, like heroin, in which you know you, really, you actually need medical intervention to get off. Um, with, with meth, you need sort of more of a, a social detox, and you need to get away from your, um, your environment. Um, and when we're talking about some of these rural communities um, where poverty is quite entrenched, um, Meth is a great escape from your world where you might, your, your partner might be beating you up badly. Um, you don't have a, a warm house or a roof over your head. Um, there's not enough food in the cupboard. Um, and so, you know, methamphetamine can fight a, quite an incredible escape from that world. And before you know, like, and, and if all your friends are doing it, and if all your relatives and, and everyone's doing it, it just becomes a norm, I think. And I think. Um, that's where, uh, you know, this, the ongoing sort of um, how do we solve this sort of problem? I think I think the answer probably lies a lot more in investing heavily into into that side of it, as well as high level enforcement, which we do quite well for our, our country mm. of our size. A lot easier for politicians to talk about police and criminals rather than those massive social issues in terms of fixing them, right? Yeah, <laughs> oh, and I, I do think. Um, I do think, and you, you see this regularly, like you know, politicians banging on about smashing the gangs or being hard on crime. Um, really, like, and yes, we should absolutely go after the criminality of, of individuals in, involved in this. Absolutely, we do a terrific job of that. And um, but really, I think 
a lot more in, investment probably is needed on, on the health side of things. Um, so for example, um, in recent years, there's been a shift away from um, arresting people with you know, minor possession charges of drugs, and so it's, it's, it's written into our, into our law now that it's sort of deemed as a, a health issue, and therefore is it in the public interest to prosecute someone with a small amount of meth or, or weed or, or whatever it is. Um, but, and that's good, I agree with that, but like, where's the help for those, for those people? And then, um, you know, because if you don't have an intervention of some kind, um, you're just going to go back into back into how you've always carried on, and then and now the courts um, is a very a new judgment that came out um, in which if if addiction has contributed to your um, to your drug dealing or your offending um, in any way, then that can be taken into account in terms of your your sentencing. So not necessarily just chucking someone into jail and throwing away the, the key, but actually saying, okay, well we'll take into your account your addiction if it has been proven to be, be part of the reason why you, um, you've been caught up in that. But the problem is, again, is that there's nowhere really for people to go to, to, get, to get help. And there are, you know, so, yeah, you might not be sending them to jail, but you're kind of just sending them back to, to where they came from. There's very limited rehab and counselling um, uh, services. Uh, and again, it's that social detox, which is necessary to take someone out of this situation, um, get them away from everybody else that might be um, you know, um, a negative influence on them, and helping them get to the point where they can help them help themselves. And I, it's not a vote winner. Mm. It's not a vote winner. Let's be honest. Everyone would rather hear about smashing the gangs or, or whatever. I, I think this will take time. I, I think, and I think in 20 years' time, we'll, we will look back at this and think, well, we are doing that now because we are heading that way. But um, it requires a lot of investment and a lot of money and. Um, I don't think that that's the sort of thing that people really care about when it comes to voting. Mm, it's not a quick fix e either, is it? It's a yeah, several yeah. years long. It probably needs to be like a bipartisan approach between the, the major government, um, major parties to say, right, we've got a 30-year plan, and no matter who's in, let's all let's work together on it. Um, and, and in some ways, they kind of do. Like they kind of do have. But they kind of they kind of dress up a lot of their policies as being different, but they are I think generally accepting of it, like this is the right way forward, um, but it's about who takes credit for it. And um, you know, so the, the National Party did some quite good stuff in government last time in relation to this, and then you know, Labour will bang on and say, oh, it's terrible, and you know, Robert, you could do more, and then they get in and they kind of carry on the same programs, and <laughs> you know, and then and then National says, oh, that's terrible, you should be doing more. So I, I think. Um, I really do think that a, a wider strategy, looking 20 to 30 years ahead, um, would be useful, and not just for drugs, but all the same sort of social issues that we're really worried about in New Zealand, you know, like domestic violence and youth suicide, um, poverty. It's all tied into the same, the same sort of things, and there's no, co there's no easy fix. I'm not saying it is, um, but uh, you know, it's still, there's still hope. I think so. Okay. Um, is it true that the arrival of, of meth or pee in New Zealand saw the, our gangs starting to work together for the first time? Yeah, and I'll just, I'll just preface this by saying that I don't believe that um, 
organised crime and gangs are the one and the same. Like there's a there's a there's a crossover. There's a Venn diagram where there's a crossover, and certain individuals from gangs will becoming involved in the organised crime side of things. But yeah, absolutely. So previously, um, different groups would be whether it's mongrel mob and headhunters and black power, very um, you know insular brotherhood. We're all for one, one for all within their own patch, and so therefore they would never be seen really associating or hanging out with members from from rival groups. Um, when and so you know, and there'd be skirmishes and, and fights, and you know, um, those that hit the news, and you know, um, you know, that general sort of violence, that violence um, that was that has been there for for a long time. But what Meth did was, well, actually, we don't need to fight because um, you know, there's enough money to go to go around here, and so you've got a connection to get that, you know, to get that particular ingredient we need. You know, someone that's got who's a really talented meth cook. The meth cooks became quite prized possessions, um, including like people would get kidnapped and thrown in the back of a boot, and you know, and it sounds like it sounds kind of sounds funny, but like they were really sought after because if you had a good cook, you could get a better yield from your ingredients and so on. And it, it actually brought different groups together um, because there was no need to fight because there was money to go around, and if you did fight and someone got hurt or killed, that would bring police attention. Um, you'd be investigated, and, and your enterprise would be it would be in jeopardy. So um, there's been plenty of cases. You know, they, they probably first started in the late 90s, early 2000s, and, and there's been plenty of examples since then um, of different groups working together. Mm -hmm. um, your your book is is made up of um, sort of 12 stories that. Um, that interrogate the sort of major meth or, or um, organised criminal cases of the past sort of 20 or 25 years, and in doing that, we see that the the growth of meth and the and the growth of gangs in this country. Um, and in telling these stories of masses of illegal um, drug importations, millions of dollars being made by these um, organised crime groups, as you said, there is one setting that pops up several times um, in your book, and that is Sky City Casino. For example, one individual spent $15 million worth of dirty money there in just 16 months, as well as banking $2.5 in gaming chips, checks, and cash into his gaming account. His gaming churn, as they call it, was $67 million. Uh, a few pages later, we hear of another Krim, who put 15 million across the tables in 15 months. As a reader, I'm left to wonder how that can happen without serious alarm bells going off yeah, in I, Sky City offices. Yeah, and um, to anyone from Sky City listening in, um, the, I mean, look, I think they got severely, the, the first cases, um, which sort of date sort of back to sort of 2006, um, and you know, there was basically two rival drug dealers up in the VIP lounge in, in the casino, putting through you know tens of tens of millions of dollars. I think Sky City got badly exposed on that in terms of their um, in terms of their reporting obligations around um, they're called um, sus suspicious transaction reports. So um, you know I think back then. That was a really bad lapse in terms of um, basically they didn't care they didn't care where the money was coming from. They just, these guys can just go for it. Um, in their defence, there are probably some legitimate people who do gamble like that. Are so, there? Well, yeah, that much? Not. I think there was a there was a um, 
they call them the junket. It's like a tourism kind of junket where people, like, where big gamblers from Macau and Hong Kong would be brought to New Zealand, hosted here by Sky City and, and up there in the VIP lounge. So that was part of their defence as well. You know, we do have people that gamble that much. It might seem mind-boggling to you and I, but you know, this is Sky City saying that. I, I look at it with a slightly jaundiced eye. But um, <laughs> I think since then, things have tightened up a little bit. Um, the casino has uh, obligations under the anti-money laundering legislation, in which um, which has been monitored a lot more closely by the Department of Internal Affairs. Um, so their obligation isn't really to stop anybody from gambling. Like it's sort of um, actually they do. Sorry, I should say they do have obligations to stop people with problem gambling uh, issues, um, which you might say would apply when you're putting through 60-odd million in a, mm. in, a, in a year. You might think so, yeah. Yeah, so there's another way of, of looking at that. But um, so Sky City, and it, it cropped up again, basically, this issue of millions of dollars going through about sort of 10 years later. Um, and it's not just a way of where they're gambling too much. It's not, it's not just a way of laundering money. Um, it's also a way of networking. Um, so these guys and, and men, women were all there around, you know, hobnobbing, rubbing shoulders, and doing business with each other um, up there, and which is, you know, and it's because you can't really do surveillance in there and, and things like that. It's quite difficult. So back to the question around um, is Sky City doing better in that regard? Um, they say that they that they are. They say that they can't legally tell us how many suspicious transaction reports. There's, there's legal the obligations and then there's moral ones, though, isn't there? That's right, yeah. and you know, and I, I think I make it pretty clear in the book where I, <laughs> where I land on the, on the moral side of it. Um, the legal side of it is where, um, so they're saying, well, look, we're making these reports through to the police, it goes to the financial intelligence unit, um, and but the financial intelligence unit is getting mi literally millions of transactions coming in to a you know a relatively small team, um, and so I would say that it's almost impossible then for them to necessarily find a direct lead out of them coming in, if that makes sense. So as opposed to if someone goes to the financial intelligence unit and says, "Look, Sonia Wilson's putting twenty million dollars you know through here. We think she's up to no good." they can then go through those reports and then have a look and say, oh, yeah, she mm -hmm. did this and she did that. Um, so they often used to backfill investigations as opposed to providing leads for investigation. Right. And um, that was sort of um, noted in a recent like audit of an in, in, in international audit of, of the police where they were told, basically, you need to get better software so that you can analyse it and, and provide new leads to investigate. So. Yeah, and there's no suggestion, I should say, to be fair, that Sky City haven't cooperated with the no, police on no, any no, of these. No, that's um, right. Yeah, no, they, they certainly they do, um, but yeah, they're certainly quite defensive around it as well. So I've had a few uh, heated conversations <laughs> over the years with with various people uh, there. But you know, the facts don't lie either. So it's um, yeah, a lot of money going through there, which um, clearly and clearly dirty. So yeah. Let's talk about gang numbers, because um, the politicians always like to talk about gang numbers. Um, according to the numbers you report in your book, there were 4,679 gang members in New Zealand in December 2016. In 2020, that number uh, was 7,027. Why such exponential growth in four years? I think there's a few answers to that. I think. Um, 
And there's been a little bit of controversy about those numbers used as well since since then. So basically, the police have said, well, look, we, we add people to the list, but we don't necessarily take people off the list if they've, if they've left. So I think that'll be part of it. Um, I don't think it explains the huge amount of growth there as well, because it's, it's a huge jump. Uh, I think part of it is the arrival of the Australian, some of the Australian groups that have come over here. So about five years ago, six years ago, Australia changed their immigration laws where they could um, basically kick anybody out who wasn't born there, uh, even if they've lived there their whole lives. And so you might have heard reference to these people as 501s, because that's the, that's the section of the Immigration Act that they're using. And among the, and it's, it's actually quite terrible, like if you think about people getting ripped up and sent home, sent, not sent home, sent to New Zealand where they've possibly never been. But, you know, you've got thousands of people being sent back, among them, were some quite senior um, gang members from groups such as the Comancheros, the Mongols, uh, the Banditos. Um, they've all got kind of funny names, I have to say, but they, they've come here and they've got a very, um, very different approach, I think, to to the uh, to our established gangs here. And so they're kind of smaller number, but they have an outsized influence on 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 what they do. And I think so. They've come in. And I think the gangs that are here have also basically recruited um, to to respond, um, and you know, because often these things, you know, it's like a, you know, if it's protecting your patch um, or your 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 turf, that's having size and numbers does does help. Um, and you know, the, the reason why people join gangs as well is like trauma in their, in their lives as well. Um, you know, growing up having terrible childhoods or in those sorts of environments where you, if you don't have a lot, then you might be finding some brotherhood with, um, with, with, different, with different groups, a sense of you know, collective cohesion and belonging that you might not have had at home. Um, that's traditionally been, um, you know, going back to the 70s and, and beyond, a reason for why someone would, would join a group like that, uh, where you're basically pulling the, pulling the middle finger to the rest of society as an outcast. Um, but I also think now with social media, like there's a lot of images and things going around where it's quite an attract that gangster life can, can bring some um, money and bling and cars, and I think, I think that has attracted a new generation coming through which are far more business focused than necessarily those who are there for that sort of, that, that brotherhood. And, um, and there can be tension within groups, like with in, inside a, a group, not just between groups, as um, along those lines as well, which is, which is quite a nuanced thing to report on and write about, um, and it's kind of hard to explain as well, but... Um, I think that's probably a lot of the reason why people people are joining gangs. Yeah. Um, you you write that there are now more firearms on the streets than ever before, as these um, as criminals arm themselves basically um, arm themselves to the teeth, is what you write for protection and intimidation. So, how worried should should we be about that? I think we need to be. Yeah. I think, like for the, <laughs> from what I can see in the audience, I don't think you're going to be in any danger of getting shot on the way home or back to, back to your car. But I do think that we need to be aware of the fact that all it takes is a stray bullet, and we're going to have an innocent bystander killed. Um, and we had an incident the other week down at the Sofitel 
um, hotel, which is a beautiful hotel down on, on the waterfront there, where a firearms were drawn and fired inside the lobby. It's uh, sort of like not in the early hours of the morning, like nine or ten after, after brunch, um, <laughs> and like. You know, it sounds silly, but like, yeah, that could have easily have killed someone standing to pay their pay their bill or check out or whatever, and we would be having a quite a different conversation right now if that was the case. Um, firearms are very easy to get in New Zealand because we've had very lax um, laws for about 30 years in regards to the registration uh, of them and how they are bought and sold, and it means that we actually have no idea how many guns there are out there. Um, that are not um, that are not um, licensed to. You need a license to be a firearms uh, owner, and you need to follow different rules. But in terms of keeping them safe, but um, for a long time, you know, if you sold them to somebody else, you didn't even need to keep records. All you needed to say was that um, oh, Jared Savage showed me his firearms license, but you didn't need to take those records down or anything like that. So we have no idea how many guns are out there, and they are ending up in the hands of people who, for a long time, they were kind of like status symbols, um, uh, kind of uh, used for intimidation or standover purposes. So, you, you know, you might not necessarily be shooting someone to, to kill them, but you've got them there, because who's going to argue with when you've got a gun pointed at you? Um, but we're at a point now where I feel like, and this comes back to some of the Australians um, coming over here, they are, there seems to be a, a ratcheting of tension that's gone up because where they come from, there wasn't sort of this sort of like, oh, well, we all just get along. There's a lot more head-to-head -head sort of um, violence, for, for almost just for the sake of protecting their reputation. And that's come in here um, where the Mongols, which is this quite violent US biker gang that has come here via Australia to New Zealand um, got in a tit-for-tat sort of escalation with, with the headhunters who have for a long time been a quite a dominant gang here in Auckland. And uh, it's actually over the use of a word. So the headhunters on the North Shore call themselves, you know, headhunters north side. And then, uh, this is going to sound ridiculous, and then the Mongols have set up over there and they, they bought a, uh, like a motorcycle store and called it Northside Power Sports. So the, the, the use of that word Northside was seen as a direct challenge to the, the guys that were there. And so there's these arsons that were happening. You know, there would someone, somebody set fire to the bike store. Someone's gym got shot up escalating to the point where someone f emptied a 30-round clip into Marua Road headquarters um, of, that's the headhunter's pad, which is an incredible gesture, uh, again, a big middle finger to a dominant, a dominant group here to say, well, we're not scared of you, um, and mm -hmm. we're going to come here and shoot your home up. And then that's what led to the Sofitel shooting um, in revenge. So, you know, all, yeah, all it would take is a stray bullet, um, and we would have an innocent bystander shot and killed, and I think that would probably create the, the outrage which might lead to um, further, further change. So, um, yeah, don't be scared walking home, but like, you know, just be, just be I guess, be aware that, aware that this, is, this is what's happening in our country and um, mm. be part of that conversation. Um, I mean, as you've just sort of described, this, this book is an eye-opener in, in many ways, but, Two of the big surprises for me in it uh, were that, number one, the Mexican cartels are here in New Zealand and operating in the New Zealand market, and two, the DEA 
is here, as in the US Drug Enforcement Agency, those tough guys from Breaking Bad, <laughs> you know, myriad other movies, the real-life organisation that, that brought down Al Chapo. They have offices in Wellington and Auckland. I did not know that. <laughs> what does the DEA want with little old New Zealand? Um, yeah, I didn't know that either. <laughs> it was quite a surprise. Um, and so that, I sort of learned about that um, as part of a documentary we did for the Herald um, a couple of years ago. And we went to Canberra to meet the, like the, it was also part of what we were looking at um, were the law enforcement efforts to, um, to you know, to crack down on, on what was happening. And as we've become, as mentioned before, sort of the, the branch office for a multinational, the police as well as sort of, looking for international help. So there's a lot more collaboration between the New Zealand law enforcement and our security uh, under the Five Eyes arrangements, basically, with, so, and the US is part of that. So I went over to Canberra to meet sort of our liaison, police liaison guy over there, and um, he was talking about you know this and that, and he, he introduced us to the DEA guys that were setting up, and they're great guys, but they were just basically saying, I said, look, what are you guys doing here? Like, what's going on? They're like, well, you know, the cartels are sending stuff over from Mexico. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I was like, I said, are you serious? And they're like, yeah, like, this has just been coming through. And um, so the reason why they, the DEA, sort of see themselves as well, if it's, you know, as part of their arrangements with, with us and Australia, everyone's working together because organised crime, um, is transnational. By its very nature, it goes across borders. Our jurisdiction ends, you know, 50 k's off uh, offshore. We need to be working with Australia, with the US, with the UK to be to be able to dismantle these groups that operate across all those countries. And um, so, yeah, they, you know, and as he said to me. Um, Kevin Merkel was his name. He said, "Look, you know, Australia and New Zealand are the the most lucrative markets in the world um, for methamphetamine and cocaine." Just to give and just to give an idea, so we are a small market compared to you know the rest of the mm. world, obviously. But to give an idea um, of the again the, the economics of it, so a kilogram of meth um, can be produced in Mexico and sold there for about a thousand dollars, and then if you move that north into um, the US, it was about five thousand dollars, so quite a big, big markup, one to one to five thousand. And that same kilo, as I mentioned before, is worth anywhere between two hundred and three hundred and fifty thousand dollars here. So, you know, there's a huge, there's a huge jump in profitability. So even if it's smallish shipments, it's still worthwhile for the for the cartels over there. Um, and in fact, they've been sending so much here that the price has actually come down. So that to the point where at one point it got down to as low as $120,000 because of how much they were sending here and controlling the supply of it. And it's probably bounced back a little bit. I think it's more around the $150,000 to $200,000 mark now. But that shows their influence. Um, and obviously, you know, we see this. You know, we see the stories overseas, and we watch you know narco's and, and things like that, and see how violent they are. Um, it would be, uh, you know, if, if that came here, then that would be um, a slightly terrifying proposition, and I'll mm -hmm. stop writing books about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just on that, <laughs> do you feel unsafe having published a book that names all of the major criminals that have uh, been caught in terms of the organised um, criminals and gang members that have been? 
caught, put in prison, you have, um, you know, detailed all their deeds, named who their mates are, where they were operating out of, how they did it. <clears throat> Do you lock your door at night? Or? <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting. I tend to feel like by the time I'm reporting on it, um, I'm not meddling in their business, if, if that makes sense. So they, by the time I'm writing about it and it's in court, um, I mean obviously I hear rumours about people and who might be involved and they're not before the courts and we've got to be very careful with our defamation laws not to, you know, call someone a, a drug dealer when they're also a very successful, wealthy business person. So, <laughs> like, but, so I guess what I'm saying is by the time people, they've got bigger problems to worry about than, than me writing their, their name in a book. Um, they're probably going to spend anywhere between 10 and 15 years in prison. So I think uh, so the short answer is no, I'm, I'm, mm. not, I'm not too worried. Um, I've had the odd phone call where people have been upset about something, but when I've kind of finally worked out what they're upset about, I hadn't actually said that in the book. Like I had, you know, it was more of an accuracy thing that they were worried about as opposed to me naming them. I was like, <laughs> so hang on, so it's not, not, not like the paperwork, I can put a clarification yeah. in the next day, you know, yeah. so. You said uh, it was 11 kilos and yeah, I yeah. And like, no, it, was, it was actually kind of along those lines. I was <laughs> like, so, um, and you know, I mean, obviously, I, and I've, you know, I've met with some of the people written in this book. Um, I actually think some of them kind of like the notoriety of it, and I think that was probably the other thing. I was, I was actually more um, concerned about not glamorising it and not making them out to be awesome, um, because they're not. Um, but it's, yeah, yeah uh, it's, it's one of those things where I think if you're really meddling in someone's business and really and essentially acting like the police, I think that's when you would be more likely to um, be in danger, or if they thought that you were a snitch or, a, or, or you know, a, a narc or whatever, and that you were trying to cultivate a relationship with them to then pass that information to the police, mm. I think then you would be in some trouble. Um, I also think that it's not like Northern Ireland or Mexico where journalists are targeted regularly. Um, I think it would. I mean, there'd probably be some people who wouldn't mind me being shot, <laughs> but I, I think it would bring it would bring more heat than it's worth um, for them. So no, I feel I, I sleep well at night. Okay. <laughs> um, let's talk about the the police. What do you make of the state of New Zealand police and policing right now with regards to? Um, I was going to say, <laughs> I've been watching too much Line of Duty. I keep going to call them OCGs, yeah. um, <clears throat> organised criminal groups. Um, you know, are, are the police well enough resourced and funded in terms of surveillance, in terms of keeping on top of, of these sorts of criminal activities? Yeah, so the previous government, uh, Labour and New Zealand First, promised uh, sort of around 1,800 more more staff, more police staff, and 700, 700 of those were ring fenced um, and and set aside to be for for the uh, organised crime and um, seizing of criminal proceeds, seizing of assets, um, which is a great number. Um, but it also it takes time for people to be trained and to come through and, and to be useful. Um, so of those 700 that were promised three years ago, I think there's about 200 or 200 or 240 was the last figure I received a couple of weeks ago. So it takes time for it takes time for um, those resources to, to, to build up. Um, and just talking to 
people, you know, talking to people who are working in that world, they could take as many as you could give them in terms of staff because there's so much work. So, and they talk about saying, well, look, we spend, um, so just, uh, you know, to investigate these groups, they're very, you know, very clever. They're using encrypted devices. Um, so every time the police work out a way to investigate someone and work out, you know, gather enough evidence, and they arrest everybody up, and that might take anywhere between six to, you know, two years, basically, in terms of gathering that information covertly so that no one knows that they're watching them. Um, that's a long time for a, for a police squad to be tied up for. Um, and then once you arrest them, you're then tied up in court for the next two to three years until it gets to trial. Um, and then you've actually then got to tell the crooks how you caught them. And that's part of our, so you've got to have, and there's a good reason, there's good reasons for that, so that, you know, they have But that you mean disclosure up. to the so defence all, team, yeah. Yep, yeah, they have all their, all, everything that they've gathered in the investigation, they have to give to the, to the, to the defence team. And then the criminals look at it and go, oh, that's how they caught me, oh, that's <laughs> what they did. And then they tell their mates in D block or whatever it is, oh, well, like, you know, when you get out, be careful around, like, doing this. So it becomes a, it's a cat and mouse game I don't think you'd ever have enough staff to police every single organised criminal group mm. operating here because there's just so many of them. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's a very dreary picture I'm painting there. <laughs> I mean, the police do an incredible, they do do an incredible job, but I, it's just, it's very, it's very difficult what, what they're doing mm. and they're constantly probably one step behind um, are quite a fluid, you know, organised crime. Organised crime is quite fluid. They can change direction quite quickly, and you don't really know what's going on unless your sources that you've cultivated are, you know, right in there. Um, it's it's a it's a losing battle for them. That's for sure. Um, so just what was it Tuesday? So just three days ago, a press release popped into my inbox from ministers uh, Farfoy and and Williams saying this. The government will make it illegal for high-risk people to own firearms by introducing firearms prohibition orders, FPOs, that will strengthen action already taken to combat the influence of gangs and organised crime to help New Zealanders and their families feel safe. Will that make New Zealanders and their families feel safe? Well, my initial reaction to that press release was, isn't it already illegal for criminals to have uh, access to firearms? Um, and the, you know, and I was just talking to a couple of cops yesterday, I said, well, is it going to make much difference to you? Um, they sort of seem to think that there's already existing legislation which would cover off the bits and pieces that the FPOs would, would, would bring in. Um, they kind of just think it will streamline um, streamline that. So they they weren't super excited about the about the FPOs. Um, FPOs in Australia and the New South Wales have a power where um, they can uh, the police can if someone is a so an FPO is like you, if you get that slapped on you, you you're not allowed to like have a firearm obviously, but also not associate with anyone that has one. Um, there's a whole bunch of non-association type type orders which make it quite difficult. Um, you know, for you to get access to them. Um, they also have a power in Australia, which is a warrantless search, so, which obviously raises some quite massive human rights issues around, around that in, in New Zealand, which Australia doesn't have, which we can tell by some of their behaviour sometimes, but, 
But um, they weren't, they, the police weren't that excited, so the ones that I spoke to the other day about the FPOs. But however, in that same press release, there was one little line in there um, which they were very excited about, which, which um, referred to a change in the Criminal Proceeds Recovery Act. So this is an act where, um, brought in about 10 years ago, um, where we talked about how organised crime is all about money, and, and this act was brought in to seize, seize the money, the wealth, the profit that can be, be, be bought off it. And what it meant is, is that um, essentially the police don't, they still have to prove a crime, um, has occurred and that you've profited from a crime, but the, basically the evidential threshold is at a civil level. It's, it's lower than the criminal, the very high beyond reasonable doubt that you need. Um, and it's been very successful for them um, in the past 10 or so years. I've just did a story the other week that they have just surpassed the $1 billion mark that they've seized in terms of total wealth that they've seized from, from um, alleged crime. Now the change that, the, that they were very excited about um, in there was the fact that the new power that would be is proposed is that anyone connected or associated to organised crime, they no longer have to prove a crime at all. They just have to say, hang on, your tax records say that you haven't earned any money last year, why are you driving a Ferrari? Um, and so it makes it a lot easier for them that, uh, to um, just, it's more unexplained wealth, I suppose, is, uh, which I, for a long time I actually thought that's how the law was, was operating, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. There was a big, a big hole there. And what it means is, or the, what the police think it means, is that they'll be able to target people who have kept arm's length from the crime that's been committed, but still profiting um, from it. So if that gets through, um, yeah, I'd say the police will be quite happy about that. Mm. Where does that money go? Not to the police Christmas party, I assume. <laughs> It goes to a fund. It goes to a fund, um, a crown fund, and it's ring fenced um, off. And what happens is, is that various government departments and NGOs can make applications to it for funding. So, for example, um, customs has pays for some extra staff out of out of that fund over in like Hong Kong or some of these places. I mean, pretty sweet job to get, but like. They're dealing, they're dealing with you know, our international partners there. Um, there's been some police um, pilot programs in terms of drug offending, which has come out of that. Um, and some, there's been some quite cool ones that are just cropping up in um, uh, sort of Tarafati, Gisborne Way, where basically community funding for the sort of the drug counselling and support networks um, so the money is it's, it's destined to go back into combating the problems that arise from from um, from drug offending. Um, okay, we've only actually got a few minutes left, so I, I better um, see if anyone out there has a question um, for Jared. There are microphones. Uh, I can see one here. There's one at the front here. So if you do have a have a question, please make your way towards the microphone. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, just a couple of questions. Um, I remember flying into Singapore and getting a, a card that said, if you're caught smuggling drugs, uh, you'll face the death penalty. Do you think that is an effective deterrent for New Zealand? Question number one. Number two, the Netflix show Vegas, do you think it's providing a service, bringing awareness um, to the country, or do you think it's just glorifying gang life? Let's deal with the death penalty first. Death penalty. Um, I, 
Is it a deterrent? Well, no, because people are still going. I, I think, and then, I mean, personally, I'd be opposed to the death penalty being here in, in New Zealand. Um, the problem with organised crime is that the big, the big wigs don't carry the drugs into the country. They send a, uh, a poor old drug mule that's, in, you know, in some way they've taken advantage of. So, what's the point in killing somebody that's um, at, at the bottom of the food chain who's probably been paid two thousand dollars to go or has been duped into doing it? Um, so, no, I'm a big no on the death penalty here in New Zealand. Um, on Vegas, I haven't actually seen it. I've read some of the criticism about it. Um, I can't comment on it because I haven't, I haven't watched it, so I'm sorry about that. Um, but I'm aware of the arguments back and forth over it. What is it about, oh sorry, there is a question here. Please, could you come up to the microphone? Thank you. So given all that you've been saying, what are your views on decriminalisation? Oh, you've really put me on the spot there. Um, I, yeah, oh, you've really put me on the spot there. Because <laughs> I'm quite, I'm quite conflicted on it. Because I do, I do think that we shouldn't be criminalising um, addicts um, and, and people who are really caught in, in that cycle. Um, <sighs> But this, you know, the people at the top of the chain still need to be, still need to be enforced. So, I mean, in terms of methamphetamine, I, mean, I can't really, I can't really speak to to cannabis or weed. There's other other arguments there, but the social harm from from methamphetamine um, is just, is so great that I just can't, I can't ever see it getting over the line here in New Zealand, to be honest. Um, yeah, it'd be a brave, a brave government to, 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 to take that on. I certainly think there needs to be a, a huge amount of investment at the front end in regards to, um, in regards to empowering communities and giving funding to communities to help themselves. It can't just be like Wellington, just you know, just directing everything from there. It needs to be from needs to be from from within with, with support from the government. Um, and, and just on that, I mean, there was a great example in Kawaro. Police did a Kawaro is a town of six thousand people, and during this investigation, um, they found that ten percent of the population was on was a user. So six hundred out of six thousand. Um, and the police were very aware. This was a new approach for them. They were very aware of the social, the wider social issues, and sort of working with iwi and community leaders there in the lead up to it. Um, and when they when they basically raided the Kawado and arrested basically most of the, the mongrel mob that were running things down there, um, they had something like 200 self referrals for help for for addiction counselling and, and and help, which is massive. Because and, and and you know addiction treatment people see self referrals as being the best kind of referral because it means people want want to be helped. They're walking in off the street asking for help, but there was no resourcing for them. To, to get that help, and the local iwi social services guy there was battling with the local DHB for a year to get funding for one more person, and then it finally got signed off. But by the time that person was there, the problem had come back. Um, so that little bit of breathing space was was kind of wasted, and um, you know their wastewater testing is, shows that meth use is, is is as bad as ever. So there definitely needs to be a lot more frontline investment into. People who can help and connect people that, that, that need that help. Yeah. Okay, we've got a question here. 
Oh, I just wanted to know if you know if gangs are importing guns. Good question. I don't know um, because that is one of the um, one of the arguments from the firearms community that the organised crime are importing weapons as opposed to stealing them or having them supplied by licensed firearms. Um, I am only aware of. Out of all the cases that are researched, I can only think of one case where there was some firearms, small handgun, two small handguns that were imported in with with 100 kilos. Um, but I would never, you know, I wouldn't be naive enough to rule it out. Um, I think what's probably more likely is that parts of guns are being imported. So, you know, different parts of guns are imported here, and then another shipment of other parts are coming, and then they're constructed here because, um, yeah, finding firearms would be a lot easier for customs than firing finding drugs, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Yes, sir. Question over here. Uh, is there an issue with uh, customs as far as uh, being ineffective as far as uh, detecting uh, the meth that's coming in? Uh, is there a under-resourcing issue or is there a, p a potential corruption issue there? Um, I think there's always probably like resourcing issues. They could, they could always do with more people and more X-range machines and, and whatnot. But the thing to take into account is we've got an open economy with you know with shipping containers coming in. If you checked every single one, you know you'd never get your you'd never get your sofa that you ordered from farmers, you know, or whatever. So like you know you've got to like they they run a fine line between making sure the economy is still moving and and checking on on suspicious um, containers. Um, there are probably corruption issues with port in the ports, and I've written about that as well, uh, where stevedores or people that are working in logistics there have been able to manipulate containers coming off um, so that they're not checked by customs. Um, but I think I, I think overall customs do a, do a good job. They've got good um, good they've got good intelligence and good risk profiling. Um, but there's always they can always do better, I think. And I think there probably needs to be they do work quite closely with the police, but I think. Off, as there often is with different organisations, they can butt heads or there can be personality issues. I, I think there probably could be more work to be done joining, joining those two groups, working, working them closely together. Okay, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for question-wise, unless you've got a super quick one. I just want to know, do you think fentanyl and other opioids are going to be a problem here, as in the States, and how can we prevent that? So fentanyl is a, a synthetic opioid um, which has killed tens of thousands of people in the States. It's sort of like, um, just for everyone who didn't hear the question. Um, I know the police are very worried about it and that's why they test for it within the wastewater. But at, from what I've seen in the last two years, um, there's been very minuscule amounts. So yeah, we should be worried about it because it can kill people. But at the moment, there's no evidence to say that um, we've, got a, we've got an issue yet, but we need to, need to be vigilant. Okay, guys, we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, if you do have any more questions for Jared or if you'd like to have a chat to him, he'll be out at the book signing table just out in the foyer. So please go and um, buy the book. It's a really great read. Get Jared to um, sign it. So kia ora rawa atu. Jared, namahinui. Nō reira. Tēnā koutou. Tēnā koutou. Tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you so much. Thanks for um, being such a great attentive audience, asking excellent questions. And thank you so much to Jared Savage. Awesome. Tanakoe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi or Tamaki. 
You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.